but to talk about the impact and colonization on health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We've got Janina Mohammed, who's a proud Narunga Karna woman from Point Pierce in South Australia. Uh, she's Chief Executive Officer of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, Katsunam. Um, 20-year history of working in nursing and organizations and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Uh, before that, she was working, Janine was working in Nacho, in the, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization. Um, Melissa Sweet will be talking too, who's the founding editor of the Social, German, Social Journalism Project for HealthCroaky.org, founding member of the Public Interest Journalism Foundation. Um, and really one of the finest uh, medical and health journalists Australia has produced. And Chloe Peters will be talking as well, who's Executive Services Manager for Katsunam. Please welcome Janine, Melissa and Chloe. I'll just get myself comfortable up here. We have got an hour and a half together, I believe. Yes, I was a bit scared about that time too, but there will be points at which we'll release you to move around in your, your seats a little bit. So what a wonderful segue into um, my talk this morning. So thank you, Norman. Ah, here we go. So good morning, colleagues, and thank you so much to the organisers for this wonderful opportunity to talk to you today about some matters that are very, very close to my heart. Nursing and midwifery history, acceptance of a shared history, racism, cultural safety, and how the professions can make a difference, especially under the conference title of diversity. I echo Norman's sentiments, which is that I believe that if we get it right for the most vulnerable people in this country, we get a health system that's so much better for all of us. I also want to make a special acknowledgement to Kate Adams, Kate's been a wonderful friend to the Congress of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nurses. Uh, we're 20 years old now, and Kate's been with us from the start, so thank you, Kate. As Norman uh, said, I am a proud Narunga Ghana woman, and I just want to introduce you to my country. So, being a Narunga Ghana woman means I come from the York Peninsula in South Australia, and more specifically from a little place called Point Pierce Mission. I'd like to begin today by paying my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, to their elders past, present, and to their future emerging generations. I would also like to acknowledge other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander colleagues who are here today, including members of the Congress of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, the organisation that I have the absolute privilege to lead. I'd also like to acknowledge all the Indigenous nurses and, and, and midwives that have gone before us and all those non-Indigenous nurses and midwives that have cared for our people. At this point, I want to introduce May Yarrowick. May Yarrowick was an Aboriginal nurse who trained in obstetric nurses, nursing here in Sydney in 1903. I'd just like to ask you to take a moment to imagine what it must have been like for May, for her to work as an Aboriginal nurse in that era, treating and caring for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. And she may well be our very first Aboriginal woman qualified in Western nursing. We now have more than 3,000 Aboriginal nurses and midwives working across this great country. But let us not forget that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were performing the roles of nurses and midwives and healers 
for tens of thousands of years before the first formal nursing school was ever established. I want to take this opportunity to invite you all to consider joining Cats and M to help support the work that we do. We welcome our non-Indigenous colleagues to join us as affiliate members. We have approximately 900 members now. When I walked in um, to the organisation four years ago, we ha only had around 73. So that's a, a great um, rise in numbers uh, over the last four years, so 900 members. And I'm proud to say that we have grown as an organisation to become a strong voice for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people's health and for our members who include those nurses and midwives and of course the students. But we'd love to see more colleagues joining us. As this audience full well knows, there is strength in numbers. Um, I love to share this slide because it illustrates the enormity of our professions and therefore the profound impact we can all have in closing the gap. Becoming a member would help us honour the holistic and culturally safe approach to achieving optimal health and wellbeing for Indigenous communities that Castanam aspires to. This morning, we're going to take an uh, we're going to perform an assessment of our nursing midwifery professions and the systems in which we all work. We hope to offer you our care plan and make some recommendations for the interventions we believe at Katsunem would make a real and important difference to the lives and health and well-being of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Thanks for the next slide. We thought we would use the framework of SOAP. I'm sure many of you remember this framework or even still use it. Um, I'll let you read through the slide if you need to re-familiarise re yourself with that. But before we begin with the assessment, I thought I'd explain a little bit about why I'm doing this presentation together with Melissa Sweet. Melissa, as you heard from Norman, is a public health journalist and the founder of the public health news site, Crokey. Thank you. Melissa's just finished her PhD, which I'm sure she's going to tell you about. Well, I know she's going to tell you about it because we practised that she would. Um, as a result of doing this PhD, Melissa says she's gained a new understanding of what it means to describe herself as a non-Indigenous Australian. I first met Melissa over a cuppa in the cafe at the National Library in Canberra just a few years ago, where she was doing some research. And I suggested we meet up, we meet up, as um, I knew Melissa was doing some work with one of our members, who's Dr Lenore Gear, a senior nursing and midwifery academic at James Cook University in Townsville. She's a Wackerman woman from Palm Island. Thank you. Dr Gayer was one of Melissa's PhD supervisors and Melissa also worked with Dr Gayer in establishing um, a strategy called IH May Day. Um, it's an Indigenous health Twitter festival that was first held in 2014. Um, it's since grown as a, as a platform, well a powerful platform each May for non-Indigenous health professionals and community members to listen to and learn from people who know the most about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and that's Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people themselves. I hope that some of you were listening um, when Katzenam tweeted during the IH May Day 17 this year. If you were, you would have heard our calls to action. Thank you. One was a national Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health Authority to lead the development of a national Aboriginal health policy and be the watchdog for all expenditure on Aboriginal health matters which impact on Aboriginal health. So that notion before what Norman was talking about, the notion of self-determination. Two are leaders in Indigenous nursing and midwifery education network, which would help universities to develop and share good practice in culturally safe healthcare 
And it's really wonderful to report that after that, we actually got funding for the Leaders in Nursing and Midwifery Education Network. So we hope, we, we believe we had an impact using that platform. Three, the embedding of cultural safety into health practitioners' legislation. So like we see in New Zealand and Canada, they actually charge their authorities, so their registration and their accreditation authorities, to produce culturally safe health professionals. In Australia, our, our legislation is silent on this. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Four, a dedicated National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nursing and Midwifery Workforce Strategy to fast track, so we are increasing in numbers, but not at the rate that we should be, so to fast track workforce increases for our population. Five, continued funding for CATS and M past June next year. After the meetup in the cafe, I subsequently invited Melissa to attend a two-day cultural safety training workshop that CATS and M held in Canberra. So some of the concepts that I'm going to talk to you today about is really a toe-in-the-water discussion about what is cultural safety. And I just want to be mindful that this discussion usually takes two days to have. And we would have great yarns and deconstruct a lot of thinking. Um, I, and it's wonderful today I get an hour and a half, because usually I have to do this in half an hour. So, um, but I just want us to be mindful of that. Um, since we've had many conversations, Melissa and I, um, on related matters, and you may, might be quite surprised to know that there's quite a bit of overlap between professional development for journalists and for nurses and midwives. Our plan this morning is that we're going to share the stage in our assessment taking, and then our colleague Chloe is going to interview us. Uh, throughout our presentations, we invite you to um, join us in doing some exercises, whether that be on a piece of paper or mentally in your head, uh, but we'll be facilitating it up here from on stage. And finally, we'll, we'll end with some calls to action. Thank you. As health professionals, we learn very early on in our training about the importance of making the time to take a comprehensive nursing note of our patients and clients. If you don't know someone's history, and if you don't, and I don't just mean their clinical symptoms, but their fullest history, then it's unlikely you're able to provide them with useful interventions and a plan that is mutually owned. So if we were taking a history of our professions, where would we start? Thank you. Well, on a positive note, nursing and midwifery unions in recent years have had a strong history of standing together on issues of social justice and I don't want us to lose sight of this. In fact, my very organisation that I run um, was born out of a union movement. Thank you. More broadly speaking about the profession's um, history, why don't we begin with Florence Nightingale, who lived from 1820 uh, to 1910. She is certainly one of the heroic icons of the profession and is often described as the world's most famous nurse. The Florence Nightingale Museum at St Thomas Hospital in London pays tributes to her work, nursing British and allied soldiers in Turkey and the Crimean War. And of course, we observe International Nurses Day each year on her birthday, May 12. So no doubt, Florence Nightingale was an exceptional woman whose work made a difference. But these heroic accounts are not the full story. Nightingale's studies of Indigenous peoples in Australia and in other parts of the world are not so widely known. Recently, I've been reading two related documents by Nightingale. Thank you. 
The first paper, The Sanitary Statistics of Native Colonial Schools and Hospitals, published in 1863, documents a survey she dis uh, distributed to colonial schools and hospitals investigating the health of what she calls the decaying races. In the colonies, including Australia, Canada, and what was then called Ceylon and South Africa. She wrote the inevitable decline and extinction of these unhappy races, whom she, appeared more, whom she said appeared more susceptible to disease than the civilised man. The second paper, published in 1865, is called Note on the Aboriginal Races of Australia. Nightingale read it to the annual meeting of the National Association for the Promotion of Social Sciences at York in 1864. The paper cites a letter Nightingale received from a Western Australian resident running a native school, native school. Mrs Campfield of St George Sound wrote, thank you. There is not, no, can you go back please? <laughs> Sorry, just missed my pun. So, <laughs> there, is, uh, there is not a nature, I think, a more filthy, loathsome, revolting creature than a native woman in her wild state. Every animal has something to recommend it, but a native woman is altogether unlovable. Thank you. <laughs> that was meant to get a laugh. So, um, that Florence Nightingale would repeat and circulate such descriptions is something to reflect upon the next time you hear her praise as a feminist icon. Of course, Nightingale's views and language was not exception by the standards of white people during that era, many of whom were so blinded by the colonial worldviews that they were incapable of seeing my people as anything other than savages a term that crops up in Florence's writing more often than I'd like to say. Thank you. They were blind to our incredible, rich and sophisticated cultures and knowledges. We could have taught Western medicine and nursing so much if only people had stopped to listen, to develop meaningful relationships with us and to value our way of knowing, being and doing. In fact, if we look at Aboriginal history during this time, we find that it is a period of massacre and genocide. And in fact, Harvard has done a study, um, so they have a whole unit um, that looks at genocide and, and around you know, various countries around the world. Um, and if you look at the map that they've got, um, Harvard has, of, of genocide and where it occurred, occurred around the world, it's dotted out in red. Um, so in, in, in Harvard, they actually have the whole of Australia mapped out in red. So I think that's um, a very you know, evidence-based but stark um, piece of history that we need to learn about. So Aboriginal death at settlement in 1788 to 1850 suggests a population decline of, wait for it, of 80 being conservative percent to 96% of um, Indigenous population decline. I'm now going to invite Chloe and Melissa to come up on stage, well, they're on stage, to give us a visual demonstration of Australia's timeline or history. And I saw this done the other day and thought it was quite effective. So this is a four metre tape representing 40,000 years. So do the maths, one metre equals 10,000 years. I'll now ask Chloe to place her finger on the period where colonisation occurred in stark contrast to 40,000 years of Aboriginal culture. And during that time, we had a period, as I reiterate, of Aboriginal population declining by 80 to 
Thank you. Thanks, guys. Many of our settlers and convicts relied on Aboriginal medicines administered by bush nurses, and settler women were assisted in birthing by our Indigenous midwives. So I reiterate that point that nursing and midwifery was here for tens and thousands of years before that first formal school was set up. Thank you. Next slide. A sobering thought is that um, we know the name of every convict who died at Sydney Cove during this period, but we only know of three to four dozen of uh, Gadigal people who died in the Sydney epidemic in 1791. Thank you for the next slide. Nightingale's publication are um, just a part of a much larger picture of scientific and medical research and practice that pathologised us, that perpetuated traumatic interventions upon us like sterilisation, and that ripped our families apart and sought to sever our connections to country and culture. And Melissa is actually here today to talk more about that with us. Next slide, thanks. These views are deeply seated in Darwin's theory of evolution and eugenics which made these actions very easy and digestible for many to do. Nightingale was far from alone in promoting the views of Indigenous peoples that is a dying race headed for extinction. Indeed, our nursing and midwifery professions have a strong history of inflicting harm upon Indigenous peoples. Just think of the stolen generation's policies that ripped families apart over decades. Researchers report that some communities have a collective memory of the involvement of maternity hospitals in the forcible removal of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children. At one Queensland settlement, when sick children were admitted to a hospital, they were sometimes discharged into dormitories, so that's another word for orphanages, rather than back to their families. Imagine a legacy of that. What parent in their right mind would want to take their ch sick child to a hospital if it meant that they'd be taken away? So my own story is, you know, around this topic is that my nana recalls a story that as a 12-year-old child, she was lined up with her peers from, she was living on the Mission Point Pierce where I was raised. Um, she was lined up with her peers and had her adult teeth ripped out of her, uh, out of her head um, to be replaced with false teeth for the remainder of her life. Um, when I asked her if she had um, any anaesthetic, she said, oh, they gave us a nip of rum beforehand and I think I might have had something, but I really did feel it. Now, these teeth were ripped out all because the superintendent of that mission didn't want to deal with the toothaches from mission kids. So, leading on and thinking about subjectivity and feeling. If you read the memoirs of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples, it is very common for our stories to refer to distressing interactions with health services and health professionals. Dr. Stephen Hagen, who recently completed a doctorate um, which examined racial bias by judges, has written about his sister asking a nurse for some pain relief when she was in severe pain from carrying twins. He says, he says his sister never forgot the vicious words of that nurse. You're a silly little black bitch. You got yourself pregnant too young, and so serve you right. I hope this pain teaches you a lesson. A Wiradjuri scholar, Dr. Lawrence Bamblett, has written about how members of the Rambury community recall a segregated ward at the back of a hospital where women gave birth and where everything was marked A, B, O. Napkins, bedpans, sheets, everything was segregated. For many decades in the 20th century, Indigenous people were turned away from mainstream health services or segregated, often in poor conditions. 
They were treated on verandas or in sheds or housed in, in horse stables or, or worse. Our workforce still includes nurses who remember having to deny their Aboriginality in order to be admitted to training. Uh, one of our members, Professor Grayson Smallwood, recently recalled a story of hers um, at our conference of her early career as a nurse, whereby her peers placed a string on her cup so that the other nurses knew that that was her cup and kept it separate to the communal cups. These feelings for us are long remembered intergenerationally and they play out in our vital signs or the objective. We see these statistics third world statistics in a first world country. Today our members continue to experience racism in their workplaces, as well as the stress of working in a white system that continues to be blind to the limitations of their white worldviews and practices, and I'm going to explain that. This is a critical barrier to the recruitment and retention of our members, remembering that we have come a long way, but we still need to achieve parity and representation in the workforce. At present, we are only 1% of the nursing and midwifery workforce, and if we're 3% of the population, we'd love to see at least that parity reached. Of course, it's not, all of, um, it's not only CATS and AM members who suffer. For many of our students who are not from dominant culture, they express that they often feel this pressure to change who they are, to behave white. This is particularly prominent for our kids who are questioned about their identity even told, in fact, that they're not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. You may have heard about a recent survey by my colleagues at the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association showing that racism is so endemic in the health system that 10% of their surveyed respondents reported concealing their identity at work to avoid racism and bullying. Findings like these are deeply worrying. If the health system cannot provide a culturally safe environment for Indigenous doctors, what hope is there for our patients, our clients? The poorest outcome of this is fatal, like in the case of Miss Drew, which Melissa will also talk about today. But if you'd like to know more, there's a great piece by Dr Gregory Phillips in the conversation. And we also see these disparities in statistics like this. So, non-Indigenous patients are three times more likely to receive a kidney transplant compared to, to non-Indigenous patients are about three times more likely to receive a kidney transplant compared to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients of the same need, with the same need. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients are both likely to receive a kidney transplant, are both less likely to receive a kidney transplant and less likely to be waitlisted for one. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with lung or prostate cancer are less likely to receive surgical procedure for their cancer than non-Indigenous populations. And the list goes on of evidence. Now that we've started to take our collective history, let's think about some of the diagnoses of the situation. Of course, diagnoses or assessment cannot be made without a framework of knowledge. Usually, understanding that a set of symptoms put together can form a diagnosis. So I'm going to put us all on the same page here, at least try. One of the most um, prevalent symptoms my colleagues at CATS and M regularly see expressed is a form of unconscious bias. And I know that Yin Paredes is, and I'm really excited that you've got Yin Paredes on, on the agenda, and he will talk about this particular topic. So unconscious bias associated with whiteness, whiteness being defined as 
system and ideologies that place white people in dominant positions with unfair privileges while rendering these privileges invisible to those benefiting from them. For me, in a nutshell, it means non-Indigenous people are affirmed by everything around them. You walk through a hospital and it affirms you because it has been built by and is run by people of your culture. It's seamless. I'm very conscious to point out that this is about culture, even though colour is mentioned. So it's about culture, not colour. An example of this is that many Aboriginal people live in fair skin. In fact, two of my children do. But their culture is not affirmed in many in the environments that they walk in. In fact, these Aboriginal kids that live in fair skin and Aboriginal adults that live in fair skin hear many conversations about their people and culture very unedited. People who experience the benefits of white privilege are often completely unaware of this. My experience is that I grew up being acutely aware of not being affirmed. From going, uh, for example, growing up in the 70s, I saw no Indigenous newsreaders, shop owners, or beans until Yothi Yindi came along. But because I belong to 3% of the population, I'm very used to being the only person of my culture in a room. I know how it feels to be a minority, and I often say to my non-Indigenous colleagues that you should get in there and feel this too. It's good for your reflective practice to try on a different lens. I, I've got this story when my, when my husband took a group of businessmen up into the Cape York um, and they, they had to camp on an Aboriginal um, community and so it was about cultural immersion. Um, got closer to the date and he received a phone call from these, uh, from these men and they said, um, how many Aboriginal people are going to be there? And my husband explained it was 100% Aboriginal community. And they said, well, we don't really know how we feel about that. And he said, why? And they really did honestly, you know, verbalise that they were feeling uncomfortable about potentially being a minority. So, I, I, you know, that conversation was a great conversation to have because people had to actually tap into their feelings and uh, move out of their comfort zones, which I think is such important work for us to do. So people um, suffering from this blindness have no idea of the many ways in which traumatic history of colonisation and our profession's part in this continues to play out in the lives of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, causing such grief, sorrow and loss. When we do acknowledge our shared history, I'm sure that many Australians would rather not celebrate Australia on the 26th of January, a date that symbolises dispossession and trauma for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now let's consider another symptom that I often see expressed, whether on the television, in the newspaper headlines or in our health system. Blindness. This symptom is fragility. Just think about that as a word as a moment. When you grow up with all of the unacknowledged privileges of being a member of dominant culture, you're simply not used to coping with racial stress. We see this in the silencing of health professionals in Manus Island, sweeping difficult situations of race under the carpet. So when those hit those 
headlines hit about Manus Island and people were so outraged that Australia um, would do this, what I said is, well, this is a part of our history. It's a part of our culture. And I pointed them to the stolen generations and said, this is what we do. Yes, we believe it shouldn't be the Australia that we want it to be. But as I said earlier, if we begin to acknowledge some of these past and have a shared history, perhaps this wouldn't happen. Discussions about race or about concepts such as white privilege can provoke feelings of discomfort, denial, even anger. Recognising and naming it can be a way, a very helpful way to stay engaged in discussions about racism and about ongoing racial justice and social justice work, especially when it becomes uncomfortable. Often when, we, when one of our members make a complaint about racism in the workplace, the immediate and instru instructive reaction of our colleagues or his colleagues is to deny the experience. When com with comments like, that's not racism, or just ignore him, or he's not like, really like that, he's just said the wrong thing, or even worse, what's your problem? Immediate response by an Aboriginal person is often feelings of discomfort from being unheard or denied. To be able to diagnose or identify what racism is, we need to understand it. I first knew racism before it was, well, I suppose, you know, before I knew it academically, I knew it as an uncomfortable, embarrassing feeling in my stomach. Something that made me want to run away. I'm sure many of you know that this, this uncomfortable, horrible feeling too. But we are quick to misdiagnose and put it on a back downgraded care pathway because we, we don't want to see it for what it is. And, or, the cure is complex and there's no quick fix solution. And because, as I've said earlier, it makes us uncomfortable. One of the solutions for me, it probably doesn't surprise you, is to know it, to talk about it, and agree to deal with it through a multi-pronged strategy. So now let's talk about diagnosis racism. You might ask, what is my role as a white person in this space? My answer is, you belong to 97% of the population. The power, the privilege, the responsibility lies with you to change it. And I'm a part of the 3% who is the most affected by racism. Therefore, I have no choice but to talk about it. Now, I just want to get you involved for two minutes. Um, this is why I did promise this would happen, with your pens and papers or just to mentally do it. Um, I want you to think about your own experience with racism. What have you witnessed? What have you experienced? And what, is, what have others told you about it? Then take another minute and on a piece of paper, write down your answers to these questions. What do you think is the percentage of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Australians that experience racism in their personal lives? And then what is the percentage that report that they experience racism in their personal lives? And we'll come back with some stats. So, I'm going to answer those last two questions. So evidence from research tells us that in a research-based study, 93% of 153 Aboriginal 
Torres Strait Islander people from South Australia reported they experienced racism in both informal and formal settings, including the health system. And in a 2011 survey of 755 Aboriginal Victorians, 97% had experienced racism in the previous 12 months. Most people experienced racism multiple times with more than 70% reporting eight or more, the important bits is more, incidents per year. So that's at least once a month. And I can personally say anecdotally, and it might surprise you, but it happens to me monthly. So racism facts. As the slide suggests, racism in the health system has serious consequences for the health care and health outcomes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I now want to step into some concepts that Cats and M works with and has defined concerning racism. I want to acknowledge, and I've already probably said it, but I want to say it again, that I could spend hours talking on this topic and therefore this is just a brief overview. And there is a risk about talking um, about racism in a one-way dialogue because I don't get to engage with you and break it down, but I hope and one of our call-outs is that some of you will work more deeply individually in this space. So if you had to explain racism to someone who knew nothing about it, what words or phrases would you use? I'm going to give you a minute, so another minute, to write down one word or some phrases. So and then we're going to go into an exercise that you're going to do when I describe different quadrants of racism. So we're back there. You've got one minute to write down some things, some phrases that would describe um, racism or one word answers that would describe racism to someone who didn't know anything about it. So as I said, we're now going to talk about the dimensions of racism. Um, and you can begin, as I mentioned earlier, to categorise your list in front of you or the phrases against these four dimensions as I begin to unpack them. But I want to point out that it's really important to be able to recognise and articulate these different dimensions. So the first two dimensions are individual responses where we have a choice to act upon them. So racial prejudice, it's an attitude. It can be expressed in your head, those thoughts that we sometimes catch. So it can be expressed in your head or said out loud. Comments that I like to describe or talk about, or which are what I commonly hear, are comments like, you're too pretty to be Aboriginal, or you don't look Aboriginal, or comments like, yes, but you're not like the rest of them. You're different which I often translate into my head is, am I behaving more white and therefore I'm not like the rest of them? Seeing Aboriginal people and feeling unsafe or feeling like you just can't ask someone if they're Aboriginal. So we talk to health practitioners, obviously, and um, when we talk to them about whether they ask people if they're Aboriginal or not, they reply to us that they often don't if someone doesn't look Aboriginal to which we reply, where did you learn what Aboriginal looked like in your anatomy and physiology class? Um, or um, they don't want to offend anyone. So to that we reply, do we not ask people about their religion, their income, when they last opened their bowels? <laughs> so that's how we can begin to break it down. Acting on this is racial discrimination, the behaviour. Examples include security people following me around, 
being refused entry for no reason. Emergency departments, so being triaged into a downgraded care pathway compared to non-Indigenous people with the same symptoms. And this is evidence-based research that shows that this occurs. And they're just two points that I'd like you to read. And if you can't, these slides are available for you. I'm very conscious that um, there's people right down the back that might not be able to see that. So racial prejudice and racial discrimination, the two that I just talked about, is fed by racial, uh, cultural racism and institutional racism. It's um, sown un into us unconsciously, cultural racism, and it's myth-telling. And it's out of our individual control. We're the sponges that soak it up. So the problem is often faced with Aboriginal people in language. So, if, um, you know, I went through university hearing language such as the Aboriginal health problem. An alternative to this is really the, these are the issues and that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people face. Aboriginal people get lots of benefits. I'm still waiting for mine. Aboriginal people drink a lot um, without exploring where these beliefs come from. Institutional racism. Again, out of our individual control. Exclusions in governance structures. So think about your hospital, where they probably should be the biggest users of hospitals, but how many hospitals have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on their boards? Um, I often like to use the example of sporting codes, where we see an over-representation of Indigenous uh, kids, you know, playing footy, AFL, NRL, yet there are no Indigenous coaches, CEOs or presidents at any of these clubs. So going back to privilege and whiteness, I see that. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are exposed to racial stress from the day we are born, if not before. If you talk to many um, professors, they would say that, no, we actually experience racial stress in the womb. Like many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, parents, I've taught my children strategies for negotiating the highly racialised environment that is Australia. My daughter, Alicia, who I said is fair-skinned, is often told that she doesn't look Aboriginal. The reply that I've taught my daughter is if you, if, what my reply that I've told my daughter is, ask them if you put milk into a cup of tea, is it still not a cup of tea? But additionally, I've taught my children where, these, where this thinking stems from. Our inheritance, it stems very much for me from social Darwinism, where we had to grade people into colours. A strength in identity is so important for our kids but what else to cure unconscious bias and racism? Perhaps if we think of it like a virus, unless we make a conscious effort, a public health response, if you like, to stop its spread, the unconscious bias is transmitted between generations of people without us knowing, and thus replicated perpetually. P, plan. So my plan, although it's part of a much bigger intervention that is needed to eradicate racism, would have to include cultural safety as a treatment. Embedding throughout our teaching, teachings and learning institutions, ensuring that we have a shared history and a true history of our professions. Cultural safety embedded into our national health practitioners legislation so that as professionals, our registration requires a demonstration of this. Cultural safety throughout our health systems so that systems, institutions, support culturally safe environments. 
One anecdote for racism, I believe, is cultural safety. So what is it? Again, a quick reflective exercise. Can you quickly answer these questions? Have you attended cultural safety training? Rate your understanding of cultural safety and rate your ability to explain the difference between cultural awareness and cultural safety training. And that'll become apparent why I've asked you that question in a little bit. So if I give you just a minute, just one more minute. So what is the focus of cultural and awareness training? Firstly, I need to say that it's outward looking. It's raising the awareness and knowledge of participants about the experience of cultures other than their own. In particular, different from dominant culture. So as I said, it's outward looking. If racism is named, the focus is on individual acts of racial prejudice, remembering those terms, and racial discrimination rather than thinking as race, about racism as it is embedded into systems. Historical overviews may be provided, but the focus is on the individual impact of colonisation, rather than the inherent embedding of colonising practices in contemporary health and human services institutions. I'll caveat that with that in sometimes when we're in particular communities, it might be required and it might be beneficial to undertake cultural uh, awareness training, but it should never be done without taking, undertaking cultural safety training. And sometimes what cultural awareness training does, and many academics talk about this, is it reinforces um, this romanticism of Aboriginal people and othering of us. So it maintains an other rather than a, a clear self-reflective focus for participants who attend to learn about Aboriginal people and culture, not about themselves. Non-Aboriginal participants are not usually asked to engage in critical reflection about themselves, their culture, and how racism is embedded in an institutional level. Cultural safety, on the other hand, and Katsunem delivers cultural safety training, and the largest myth um, that participants walk in with is that they believe they're going to learn about Indigenous culture and how to treat an Aboriginal person via a tick list. But as you can see, and I've put Tyndale's map um, there in the corner of the slide, look at those languages. We have over 500 different languages. We are not homogenous peoples. Like non-Indigenous Australians, we are unique from family to family, community to community, and therefore there is no cookie cutter approach. In fact, no one 
could ever learn all there is, all the nuances of our peoples. In contrast to cultural awareness, people are asked to tune in to their con unconscious bias, so to listen to the, some of the things that you know, run through our brains without us even thinking about it, turn their gaze towards themselves and critically reflect. They explore racism through all levels, individually through to systems. They understand whiteness and unpack it and understand its impact and how to look for it. They are asked to step into their responsibility, not be a bystander. Understand that the standards that uh, you walk past are the standards you accept. To understand that there is no pinnacle, there is no point where you become competent because it is a lifelong journey and to challenge myths. Now that I've explained cultural safety versus cultural awareness, I want to ask you to reflect on your answers and to consider if you would change your responses. Would you be able to now explain to someone what's the difference between cultural safety and cultural awareness? But more importantly, have you actually done cultural safety training? So going back to myths, which is one of the very powerful things we talk about in cultural safety training, we have a, um, a video that I watched. Um, and I have been warned that sometimes when you play videos about myths, that they are, um, they, there is a risk of reinforcing myths. But I want you to think about this in, the, in light of cultural safety and where some of the thinking uh, is formed around the myths that um, are highlighted in this video. Um, and there are some well-known myths. So can I have the myths video, please, AV? I'm Aboriginal and I think it's important to smash stereotypes. <laughs> I'm Aboriginal, but I'm not a threat to you. I'm Aboriginal, but I don't steal. I'm Aboriginal, but I'm educated. I'm Aboriginal, but I don't use drugs. But I don't live in a hut. But I'm not an abo. But I am not ignorant of other cultures. But I do not drink. But I'm not dark-skinned. And I'm not on any welfare benefits. But I'm not dumb. But I'm not scary. But I'm not violent towards women. But I'm not an angry black woman. But I'm not a bung. But I'm not a prison. But I'm not a criminal. But I'm not good at sport. I didn't receive free education. But I'm not driving around in a free car. But I don't get everything for free. I'll work hard for it. I'm Aboriginal and I finished high school and I went on to university. And I'm currently at uni studying my second degree in science. And I have two university degrees. And I'm a journalist. And I have a degree in Bachelor of Nursing. And I have succeeded in your society. And I'm a neurology nurse. And I have retained my culture. And I'm a proud nerd of Buffy. And I performed <laughs> for Grace Jones. And I respect all colours and races. And I want justice for all peoples in this country. And I love dogs and pugs and French bulldogs. And I am a very humane person. And my family accept me and my husband. And I'm proud to be a strong Aboriginal woman because I come from a line of strong Aboriginal women who are not afraid to stand up. I'm Aboriginal and I'm very proud we've survived everything we've been subjected to. And I'm a proud Aboriginal woman. I'm proud to be a part of one of the most beautiful cultures in the world. And I'm proud that we're the oldest living culture on this planet. I'm Aboriginal and I love my culture. My culture is alive everywhere I go. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And I would not have it any other way. At the end of that, I always feel like saying, my name's Janine Mohammed Amel, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm a nurse. 
So you might have seen in there, you know, some of our CATS and AIR members, some of our fellow nursing and midwifery professionals. So the challenges are big. <laughs> um, and here's some challenges I want to throw out to you, some things to think about to begin with. Think about how collectively you can support us change systems and embed cultural safety into health practitioners' legislation. How we can gain histori historical acceptance via a commission into truth and reconciliation in this country. Individually, be informed about the upcoming referendum. It's going to be a big chapter in this nation's history. And undertake cultural safety training yourself. My bigger challenge is be brave. Challenge those myths. It's not easy, me getting up and talking about these topics, but if we don't have those water cooler moments, if we don't talk about the big R word, how are we ever going to eradicate it? Now I'd like to um, take a brief pause to consider some other aspects of our collective history. So I've got some slides here on, on uh, some questions on a slide that I want to direct to you. So when you went to school, did you learn about the Australia that was discovered by Captain Cook? And did you learn about the brave European explorers, pioneers and settlers, and hence the monuments built to honour them? Or did you learn that Australia was discovered over 40,000 years ago? It's got a culture that's older than the pyramids. It was discovered by Aboriginal people, and the did you learn about the brutality of colonisation and invasion that led to the unspeakable brutalities and atrocities uh, being committed upon Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men, women and children? Did you visit any Aboriginal monuments when you were at school? When you studied nursing, did you learn about the problems of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Did you learn about Florence? Or did you learn about our incredible strength and resilience as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and our sophisticated cultures and knowledge systems that are older than the pyramids, as I said? Did you learn? about bush nurses who nursed white settlers and our midwives who birthed this nation. When I, asked, when I asked you to think about racism, did you think it's someone else's problem, that if you hear a racist comment, you would stand up against it? Or do you understand that racism is so pervasive and institutionalised in this country that it's largely invisible to those who are not directly affected by it? and thus it's everyone's problem. How did you feel when I talked about whiteness as a serious threat to health? Did it make you feel angry and uncomfortable or did it ring true to your lived experience? In closing, I encourage you to reflect upon the questions and consider this video by Reconciliation Australia about our shared history and the Australia that cats and M that I want to live in. Thank you. Hello everyone, um, I'd like to acknowledge Janine, thank you so much for that wonderful and very powerful presentation. It's an honour to follow you, a little bit daunting of course as well. Um, so I'd like to begin by paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the country that we're on, to the Derriban people and to elders past and present and to future generations. As Professor Bromwyn Fredericks and colleagues have written, we are always guests in country that is not our own. 
It's such a profound and important message for us all to understand, to listen to, and to enact. I also pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars, organisations, and community members whose work I drew upon and privileged in researching the history of medical incarceration. The work that I'm going to talk about was undertaken on the country of many First Nations people, as this sign indicates. It is from the entrance to the Gunwaru Mia Cultural Centre in Carnarvon, in Western Australia. It acknowledges the Ingata people. Sadly, this centre closed during the course of my research, and I'll return to why that's important later. I would also like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives who are here today, including members of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. Warm thanks to the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association for the invitation to join you. And a special shout out to the Association and to Angela Garvey for your support and engagement with some of the work that I'm going to talk about. I'm especially pleased to be here presenting with Janine, a distinguished and inspiring nursing leader. Janine's generosity in reaching out to me during my PhD research and engaging with it, and also more generally with Crokey, is deeply appreciated. And I also want to acknowledge Janine's invitation for me and one of my PhD supervisors to participate in a Katzenham Cultural Safety Workshop. It was an important landmark for my PhD. So this is the cover, or at least part of the cover, of a book. It's by a Swedish author who travelled Australia unpacking the terra nullius concept, the profoundly ignorant and shameful worldview that this was nobody's land. The cover of this book is profoundly symbolic at so many levels. Scholars have described terra nullius as, quotes, a white supremacist doctrine a worldview that enabled colonisers to steal the country of people who had belonged to it for tens of thousands of years previously. It is a worldview that enabled colonisers to remain willfully blind to the centrality of connection to country and culture for the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and that enabled many to remain blind to the profound strengths, knowledges and resilience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. As Janine has described, today we are embarked on a collective journey of history-taking, and one of the recurring symptoms is the pervasiveness of this blindness. When I picked up this book at an airport in 2008, read it straight away on the flight, I was stunned to le learn that Aboriginal people were imprisoned at two remote island hospitals off the Western Australian coast in the early 1900s. It was just a few pages of mention in the whole book. They were said to have venereal diseases, a non-specific diagnosis that at the time was often made by police officers or others without medical qualifications. How could I not have known about these hospitals? At that stage, I'd been reporting on health and medical issues for more than 20 years. I began to ask around widely, including of health professionals working in Indigenous health. It was unusual to find someone who knew this history the more I searched, the more I realised that my initial outrage revealed an even more profound ignorance. That if I had had a better grasp of the colonial history of Australia and of healthcare, 
I would have realised that this history of medical incarceration, while shocking, is not exceptional. Rather, it is emblematic of the historic and ongoing role of healthcare in harmful colonising practices, and thus one part of a much bigger story. My own ignorance reflected a wider state of oblivion in the non-Indigenous community about the historic and ongoing impacts of colonisation. Like many, I was taught at school the terra nullius version of history, that this country was discovered by Captain Cook and settled as an English colony. We did not learn about invasion, dispossession, white supremacy or the frontier wars. Nor did we learn about the never-ceded sovereignty of the First Nations people. So this book cover, it also symbolises where I was at when I began the PhD, blind to the many ways in which the doctrine of terra nullius had shaped my own worldviews, blind to how white privilege played out in my life. I was also blind to the extent to which racism expressed by systems, structures, processes, cultures and individuals shape the health, experiences and opportunities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how it is enacted in many of the spheres in which I operate, personal, professional and more widely. I also acknowledge the difference between having my eyes opened somewhat and, ha and having an understanding informed by lived experience of the reality of racism. Like Janine, I would like to emphasise that when I refer to whiteness, it is not in relation to skin colour, but to how dominant systems, worldviews and practices serve to reinforce the privileges of members of the dominant society. So I bought that book by Sven Lindquist. I read a few pages about the history of the Lock Hospitals of Bernier and Dory Islands off the coast from Carnarvon, and the story grabbed me. Never let it be said that books don't change lives. I ended up doing a PhD as a way to find out more about these lock hospitals. But in the end, the PhD was about so much more than these hospitals that operated from 1908 to 1919. And here I'm acknowledging the PhD team. It's really only a portion of the PhD team given how many people have been involved along the way. It includes my supervisors at the University of Canberra, in particular my primary supervisor, Associate Professor Kerry McCallum, and I would also like to acknowledge the University of Canberra's Chancellor, Professor Tom Karma, and the Dean of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Leadership and Strategy, Professor Peter Adol. I've been incredibly fortunate to have among my supervisors two leading Indigenous scholars, Professor Pat Dudgeon and Dr Lenore Geyer whose work in decolonising methodologies was foundational for the PhD. I've also been so blessed for the opportunity to work with the PhD advisors. Richard Weston, the CEO of the Healing Foundation, Associate Research Professor Alwyn Chong in Adelaide, Renee Williams now in Cairns, and Kathleen Muslin in Carnarvon. And you'll hear more about Kathleen and her family. Others are also acknowledged in that photo, in particular Luke Pearson, whose work in establishing the rotated curated Twitter account Indigenous X, which I hope and presume you are all following, has been transformative for public discourse. If you are not already following Indigenous X, it has a different Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander guest tweeter each week. Then may I suggest that it's worth joining Twitter just for this account alone. I think I have learned as much from immersing myself in Twitter 
listening to the diverse voices shared by Indigenous X and by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as I have from all the books and journals that I have read over the past five years. This is a reminder, I think, of the importance of voice and storytelling and connection in transformation. And it also hints to some of the remedies for the pervasive, the pervasive blindness that we are diagnosing today. Sorry, I know you won't be able to read that sign. The type is very small, but it's just indicative. It's, it's from Carnarvon. Carnarvon is a focal point for the history of the WA Lock Hospitals because it was from the famous one-mile jetty there, which is now a tourist spot, that hundreds of men, women, and also some children were taken to boats for the often traumatic and perilous journeys to the Bernier and Dory Islands. The Gunwaru Mia Cultural Centre, which, as I mentioned, is now closed, it was the only place in town that acknowledged the Lock Hospital history publicly. So at this point in time, everyone who goes to the jetty, the local children, the visiting children, the fishermen, the fisherwomen who go there, the tourists, the health professionals, they do not learn anything of the role of this jetty in an incredibly traumatic history. Millions of dollars of Western Australia's royalties for the region's money have gone into a tourist centre and a historical display at the jetty. And yet, as this sign illustrates in more ways than it intends, we learn only a little bit of history. Doesn't that say something about the way colonial history has generally been told? Privileging some events, some voices, some worldviews, and leaving out others altogether. Over the last four years, <clears throat> I have spent many hours walking around that jetty, photographing it from all different angles. This is the photo that speaks most to me. It is taken from near the end of the jetty, and the jetty is a very dilapidated structure, looking back to land. When I stood on that jetty to take that photo, I tried as hard as I could to imagine what it must have been like for the people. Wrenched from their country, their families, often by police, and brought long distances to Carnarvon. Many coming to this jetty were sick and weak after having travelled long distances, often marched in chains. In the early years of the Lock Hospital scheme, WA's chief protector, Charles Gale, was reported in newspapers acknowledging that collections, they called it collections when police burst upon people in the early hours, for the lock hospitals had been difficult because, he said, they were seen as a sort of jail. He said, I regret to say that at times force has to be used to bring people to the islands. Yet at the same time, he could write in his department's annual report that the lock hospitals were humanitarian work. He wrote, such a great undertaking of this kind has never before been attempted in any part of the Commonwealth, and it is an emphatic contradiction to the many charges made against the state government of neglecting the welfare of the Aborigines. Yet the death rates on the islands were very high, a fact that even Gail acknowledged. Many people never made it back to the mainland after walking that jetty, perishing on the islands. In his annual report for 1909 to 1910, Charles Gale reported 33 deaths were recorded out of 
189 people on the islands at that time. Between 1908 and 1919, more than 150 people are recorded to have died on the islands, but many people believe this is a significant underestimate. It is something we all might reflect upon while looking at that photo. The impossibility of ever really knowing what it was like for those taken to the islands, but the absolute importance of trying to understand, the absolute importance of remembering those people and ensuring that respect is paid to their memories. Just to give you a glimpse of what the landscape is like on Dory Island. <clears throat> the men and women were segregated on the islands. For most of the period, the men were on Bernier and the women on Dory. This photograph gives an idea of the conditions, which are, they're on Mulgana country, and the conditions with sand dunes, low scrub. I shudder to think of what it must have been like for people when the winds blew hard, as they do along that coast at certain times of the year. Yet we know from newspaper and other accounts that despite the hardship, despite the fear of the medical instruments and the medical experiments, despite the misery of being away from home, people danced, they fished, they hunted, they practiced culture and some were overjoyed to finally be, re be released back to their homes. Sorry, that's a, a little dark to read. I hadn't realised. It, it's acknowledging the people who were taken to the islands and remain there, and it's on Dory Island. It was erected some years ago on Dory Island, which is way out of sight for most people. It's very difficult to get to those islands, which are World Heritage listed and protected. So there is some acknowledgement, but it's out of sight to most people. As part of my research, <clears throat> I asked scores of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about these histories, why they mattered, what they wanted out of the PhD project. There is a strong wish by Aboriginal people in Carnarvon and in other places that there be memorials to acknowledge this history in other, more accessible public places and also for this history to be part of the curriculum in schools and universities, in education and in training at all levels. Interviewees wanted the wider Australian community to know what Aboriginal people went through. Another typical comment was, I want everyone to understand. This is one of my favourite photos from the thousands taken over the past five years. It shows Kathleen Muslin, who's a Mulgana Yaru woman who lives in Carnarvon, with her two daughters and her two granddaughters. We're in the beautiful Sacred Heart Church at Beagle Bay. We are on a road trip of a lifetime, retracing the footsteps of Kathleen's grandfather. He was taken from his family and put into the mission at Beagle Bay. The story that Kathleen was given by her mother is that as soon as her grandfather was old enough to leave that mission, he made the journey to Carnarvon and Shark Bay, more than 1,500 kilometres, in search of his mother, who had been taken away to the Island Lock Hospitals. What a heroic journey. He never found her. She is presumed to have perished on the islands. But he remained in the Shark Bay region all his life, which is how Kathleen and her family came to grow up there. Kathleen is now on a mission, 
but it's to ensure there is proper acknowledgement for not only her ancestors' stories, but all those who were so cruelly taken away. Let's be very clear that this was explicitly racist policy. Non-Indigenous people with venereal disease, which was seen as a huge problem for the general population at the time, were not taken away to island prison hospitals. Quite the reverse. Delegates at an Australasian Medical Congress in Sydney in 1911 recommended increased efforts in prevention and treatment for venereal diseases, stating that general hospitals and dispensaries, rather than public or lock hospitals, should provide the necessary accommodation for venereal cases. In 1921, hospital authorities in New South Wales argued that general hospitals were better than lock hospitals for treating venereal infections, as lock hospitals promoted stigma and discouraged people from seeking treatment. Last year, you may have seen the SBS documentary, Who Do You Think You Are?, featuring the musician and former Federal Minister Peter Garrett. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you'll be able to find it online. He went to visit the islands where his grandmother worked as a nurse, travelling across with Kathleen Muslin and Bob Dory, Bob's pictured there with him on the beach at Carnarvon, as well as the film crew. So Bob <coughs> is also working with Kathleen, the Carnarvon Shire Council and others towards a public memorial project. When Peter Garrett wrote his memoir a few years ago, Big Blue Sky, perhaps some of you have read it, he mentioned that his grandmother had worked with people with leprosy in WA. This was before his eyes had been opened to the true history. And this is a common mistake, thinking that the lock hospitals were for people with leprosy. This may reflect the stigma surrounding STIs as well as the intertwined history of STIs and leprosy. But it also reflects that these lock hospitals were part of a much wider history of the medical incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. As this map shows, the punitive surveillance and medical incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, whether for STIs or leprosy, went on for about a century in Western Australia, Queensland and the Northern Territory. When the Bernier and Dory Island Lock Hospitals closed in 1919, the remaining patients were transferred north to a lock hospital that was then built at Port Hedland. Other places where people were held in WA included Cossack, Derby, Beagle Bay, and of course the massive Bungarung Institution via Derby, which did not close until 1986, decades after effective treatments for leprosy became available. About 357 people are thought to have died there. As the historian Dr Marianne Jebb has written, there are very few members of the older generation of Aboriginal people in the Kimberley who have not had some contact with Bungarung, either as an inmate or a relation to an inmate who died or was away for a period of isolation. In the Northern Territory, sites of medical incarceration included Mud Island and Channel Island. In Queensland, the sites included Damon and Friday Islands in the Torres Strait. At a lazarette on Peel Island in Moreton Bay, which for a period had both 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients as well as non-Indigenous patients, at that site, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients were segregated and treated differently to the white patients. And when they were removed to Phantom Island, up in the Palm Island group off Townsville in 1940, the conditions there were inferior to those provided for the white people remaining on Peel Island. Phantom Island has a long history as a site of medical incarceration. It had both a lock hospital and then also a lazarette. So it was putting this map together that helped me to start understanding this history as representing a system of medical incarceration rather than a confined, discrete episode off Carnarvon. And it was also because I started to understand that people were being moved vast distances between these institutions. They were taken from across WA to Carnarvon, then some to Port Hedland. They were taken from across WA to Cossack, Derby, Beagle Bay and Broome, from there to the Channel Island Leprosarium in the Northern Territory. Newspapers reported on the traumatic conditions in which people were shipped in luggers from WA to Darwin. Then when the Channel Island facility closed in 1955, some people were transported back to WA in trucks years after they had left. So we're talking about... That's it. So it's a chronic, persistent, and I think you could also say relapsing in that many of the themes um, continue. So people weren't only locked up in these institutions, they were often held in police lockups and other lockups while waiting um, transport, and this could be weeks or months. And they were confined in other ways. That map shows the line across there that was called the leper line. It was in place in WA from 1941 to 1963. So in 1941, an amendment to WA's Native Administration Act restricted the travel of Aboriginal people across the so-called leper line, the 20th parallel of South Latitude. So Aboriginal people living to the north of this line had to apply for a permit to travel south for medical treatment or other reasons. So you can imagine what impact this would have had on people's ability to, to seek work, make contact with family and so on. This is not ancient history. Chains were still being used to detain leprosy suspects in WA as late as 1949. And in 1947, a Carnarvon newspaper reported that an Aboriginal woman had been recaptured after escaping while being taken to Derby Leprosarium from Port Hedland. She cut the chain, her leg chain with a hacksaw. Police patrols of the Kimberley continued searches for leprosy suspects until at least 1949. These lasted many months and were sometimes known colloquially as the Big Roundup. These histories highlight a long-standing connection between coercive practices in health, policing and justice systems as an important and ongoing health concern for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It is telling that Carnarvon in WA and Palm Island in Queensland, two of the key sites in this story, have long histories of penal policies and interlinkages between medical and other forms of incarceration. The episodes described, briefly described from this map were largely portrayed in public and government debate at the time as benevolent humanitarian interventions. However, they inflicted physical, mental, social, emotional, cultural and spiritual trauma for a period lasting almost a century, if you consider that it was in the late 1800s that police were surveilling um, people in the north of WA for medical infections. 
These episodes led to the dislocation of multiple generations of people from their families, communities and country. They were part of a pattern of events and policies that interrupted people's ability to care for country and to undertake cultural practices and responsibilities. In her investigations of the history of a Yamachi lawman, Jal, who was incarcerated both at Wajima, or Rottnest Island, and Bernia Island, a Yamachi researcher now working in Perth, Dr. Robin Barrington, provides what is believed to be the first such account of an Aboriginal prisoner patient and his history before and after exile at a lock hospital. Her PhD research, which you can find by Googling, and I encourage people to read it, demonstrates the devastating impact for women and children who are left behind. They were vulnerable to institutionalisation and to coercion by government agents and others. Giles' removal from country had a significant impact on his capacity to participate in family, cultural, social and economic responsibilities throughout his lifetime. It left his family dispersed, vulnerable and dependent for survival on others. These were the experiences of many hundreds of families around the continent whose ties were fragmented, often forever, by the policies of medical incarceration. It's not surprising that the archives and old newspapers have many reports of people escaping or attempting to escape from these institutions and the so-called collections. So earlier this year, an important meeting was held in Melbourne. It brought together people from WA and Queensland with shared experiences around this history of medical incarceration. The participants included Magdalena Blackley and Veronica Coots from Palm Island, Joe Egmolisi, OAM, who was taken to Phantom as a young boy and spent his formative years there. And from Carnarvon came Kathleen Muslin and Bob Dory. In this slide, I acknowledge those organisations, including yours, who helped sponsor the meeting to support the travel costs of these community members. It was significant that the Australian Psychological Society hosted the roundtable meeting, given the leadership that they have shown in making an apology for the profession's role in causing harm and trauma. And we were very fortunate that uh, Professor Pat Dudgeon was there that day because apart from um, her role with my research, she was very instrumental in the APS apology. So if you haven't already read the APS apology, it's worth Googling and reading the full document as it sets a useful precedent for other professions to follow, I think within and outside the health sector. A strong message from the roundtable participants was that processes like the APS apology are potentially very powerful agents of healing and reparation if done properly. It's not a one-off event. Here are some photos from the day. You can see Janine up there, and Robin Barrington is directly under her. And Joe Egbelezi is on the top right. Listening to the participants' stories was a powerful reminder that this history of medical incarceration has ongoing consequences for the families, kin, communities and country of those taken away. It is not something separate or past. It's a history that continues to play out and remains very present in people's lives and also embedded in ongoing policies and practices. That was also a finding from my research. 
Interviewees rarely discuss the Lock Hospital history as a discrete, isolated episode. They almost universally put it in the context of the wider history of colonisation and of policies and practices that seg segregated, institutionalised, confined and controlled people. And we heard from Norman before about the importance of having control over your own life and self-determination. It removed them from family and country, disrupting family and cultural connections. Many people also raised other histories of incarceration at Wadjamup and other places. They spoke about the use of forced Aboriginal labour, whether it was in prisons or those who were blackbirded to work in pearling and other industries. One interviewee noted that while the various institutions had different purposes, penal, hospital, mission, they had the same outcome, forced removal on every count. Another interviewee stressed that the Lock Hospital history must be told in the broader context of other examples of incarceration and abuse. This photograph shows a plaque at the site of the former Lock Hospital in Port Hedland that I visited with Kathleen and her family. It also reminds me of more recent local history from that area, the death of Ms. Du the young woman who was treated in the most inhumane ways by police in South Hedland, as you'll know if you have watched the shocking footage of her being dragged along the floor while she was dying. She was also failed by health services and professionals. The circumstances of her case resonated with what the many interviewees told me. They spoke of their own or family members' adverse experiences with healthcare that reflected racial stereotyping and culturally unsafe practices. The Indigenous health professionals who I interviewed also described the trauma of working in systems that are hostile to Aboriginal people, whether as patients or employees. One interviewee who had worked as a social worker recounted being told some years previously by the matron in charge of the hospital where she worked that young Aboriginal women should be sterilised to stop them becoming mothers. Interviewees also saw fear and mistrust of services and authorities as an ongoing legacy of the Lock Hospital and related histories, and comparisons were often drawn with the removal of children, the stolen generations. A number of interviewees, including health professionals, said many Aboriginal people fear going to hospitals because they were and continue to be seen as places from where people do not return. And I think this goes to the point that Janine made. It's such a powerful example of why developing a shared understanding of history is central to culturally safe practice. And it's also why we need to stop underlying patterns of colonisation that continue to manifest today. Authorities and others need to stop causing harm to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people under the guise of good intentions. Many interviewees stress the importance of connecting the dots between the past and the present. One said, if we are not connecting the dots, we just keep doing the same stuff. And it's no surprise that many, many people cited the Northern Territory intervention as a pertinent example. But there are so many others. And I think of what Richard Weston, the CEO of the Healing Foundation, said when he was asked about the big events of 2016 to reflect. He talked about Ms. Dew's case and the human rights abuses at the Dondale Correctional Facility in the Northern Territory. He said, these two issues highlight for me that we can't keep saying we have a long way to go. 
If you are an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander who lives in poverty, has an addiction, and comes into contact with the justice system or the health system, you are unsafe. You are at risk of being neglected and abused. And if you have a pre-existing injury, you may not get the treatment you require. Your life could be in danger in these systems. Racism in these systems is alive and well. I thank Magdalena Blackley for sharing this image with us. It's a flyer from a healing ceremony that was conducted several years ago on Phantom Island. Many of the people who participated said it was profoundly and important, profoundly important and meaningful and healing. Phantom, remember, was the site of both a Lock Hospital and a Lazarette. It operated in these capacities from 1928 to 1973. 1973. I know some of you won't have been born then, but had to, for those who were, had to think, how old were you in 1973? This history is so close. Janine, Janine knows that year because it was her birth year. She was born there. And I was 10 years old when this was happening. So many people were very pleased to have this opportunity for a healing ceremony, but so much more is needed, and the people with a connection to Phantom Island, that, you know, there's so much they'd love to see done around healing and, and acknowledging that history. And here, here is, um, that looks like a beach, but um, it's from a visit to Phantom Island a few years ago. There is Veronica Coots in the background. She's a local teacher and she takes her students from Palm Island to Phantom Island each year because it's important for them to know this history. But this photo is also a reminder of the need for some serious effort to protect and preserve these sites. Where we are walking there in the photo is believed to be the cemetery of the Phantom Island Lock Hospital. There is only one grave that remains marked. As in many other of the sites of medical incarceration, the burial sites are not protected. So we've been talking about a rather traumatic history of healthcare. What can help with the healing? One way is through telling stories of, of, telling stories of acknowledgement, following proper process and with respect. In telling stories, it is critically important that we're aware of the language, the framing that we use, the position that we're telling the story from, and also, that this is purposeful storytelling, as is explained further in this quote from Dr. Robin Barrington. It's actually the quote that I end my PhD with. She says, growing up, I was faced with an impenetrable and resolute silence when asking questions about our Yamachi family history. A journey through the colonial archive and listening to contemporary Yamachi oral histories was my awakening to the true extent of the human rights abuses against my Yamachi family and ancestors. Childhood frustrations have transformed into a deep and affectionate respect for the resilience and strengths of my ancestors who endured the most unimaginable atrocities during their lifetimes. Robin says, I believe that in a spirit of healing through history, we all have a responsibility to tell the many untold stories of injustice and abuse against Aboriginal peoples across Australia that continue to ramify into the present. 
So storytelling, truth-telling is an important part of healing. But so are processes like apology and reparation. The recommendations from my PhD include that health systems, services and professionals follow the lead of the APS in making an apology. Another recommendation is for health systems and services to establish a day of acknowledgement or a similar mechanism of acknowledgement to acknowledge the sector's historic and ongoing role in harmful colonising practices. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have repeatedly urged the importance of acknowledging history for health and wellbeing. And in, in medical literatures as well, the practice of acknowledgement is urged for the healings of victims of trauma. A National Day of Acknowledgement could be a tool for promoting and embedding cultural safety in policy, practice and systems, for developing relationships, including with country, and for enabling greater awareness of the health impacts of history at both local and national levels. These are local conversations we need to have, big, bigger conversations as well. It could also be health-promoting and support healing, including wider understanding of healing as a holistic concept involving social, emotional, cultural and spiritual processes. If you and your professions or workplaces were to take up these recommendations, apology and acknowledgement, not as one offence, but as ongoing processes. I know that many of the people who contributed their time, their stories to this research would view it as profoundly important and meaningful. It is what they have asked for. It also fits, I think, with bigger moves for an establishment of a commission of truth and reconciliation. So thank you for listening and for considering the requests and also for considering the recommendations that Janine has put forward. How are we going for time? So we've run out of time for Chloe to have a big moment and get to ask questions. She's so disappointed. But we just wanted to point out the five pillars of reconciliation. What we were talking about today was historical acceptance. Um, this is a wonderful quote by uh, Kath Walker, as you might know her, but her name was actually Ijuru, and she's passed now, and we wanted to leave you with not just this, but our closing remark is, um, and there's a, a, a funny saying around cats and M is, may we never hear a health professional utter the words of, I treat everyone the same ever again. And we think that that should be the anti-hashtag for this conference, mm -hmm. I treat everyone the same, not. Um, and in our closing remark, we hope you feel inspired to be, or continue to be, part of the solution in facilitating a collective solution that moves us from a place where barriers no longer exist. Thank you.